I was in talks with the prosecutor there and explained them the likelihood for those guys in Venezuela who own the exchange to perpetrate the hack and then change the funds for fiat and rubble is so, so low that I can, with absolute certitude, tell you that they did not perpetrate that fraud. It's somebody Russian. And they got liberated. I can tell you that prison in Venezuela is not a joke. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH, exclusively on MEV.io. And Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to mantis.app. That's M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Degachi, the host of Scraping Bits. And today I've got a special guest, the one and only Miguel from Tracelon. How's it going? Hey, hello. Hello, Degachi. Doing well. Yeah, it's great to hear. I'm very excited to have you on. And I think this will be a very interesting episode for the listeners doing a very niche thing. Just for the people that are unfamiliar with you, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, I'm a chain forensicer and uh, investigator, specialized on, on the technical aspects of the forensic part of blockchain analysis and basically what I've been doing for last seven years, approximately. Seven years, tracking down the bad guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what got you into this? I don't know how you really get into this kind of thing. Were you doing a Web2 before or just went straight in and trying to find the blockchain people? It was a combination of things that happened at the same time, and it just made sense. I really was very passionate about trying to bring something positive to to the sector. So I started, in fact, very long ago doing private security, like more traditional one. At some point, I was working for VIP people, certain places that were considered high security. And then I started to study engineering, and I was full-time on the blockchain doing background checks. And it just made sense for me to join Cypherblade, which was the company I've been working on until recently. Until you started your own trace line. And then I started my own company. It's a very common thing to start your own investigation company. So what does that entail? What was that process like of starting it and getting to the point where you're at now and building it up? Because I imagine it'll be difficult, you know, to get clients and to show results, all this stuff. It would be a difficult game. Yeah, well, it came out naturally, I would say, because I was extremely happy at Cypher Blake. I was extremely passionate about it. I gave all my time, all my mind, all my soul to it. And it happened that the company imploded due to conflicts between founders, co-founders, or people managing the company. That was nothing new. It happened in, in August, but I will say back then, like oh, a year ago, when I started to see that those problems happening, I tried to stop that, those, those discussions. And I told them, like, guys, if this is the, the manner of doing things, I'm just quitting. I'm just quitting. And that I said one year ago, maybe not related particularly to that, but it happened that the situation was calmed down uh, until it exploded last summer. So yeah, for me, it was make, made sense to make my own company. Out of that implosion, there was there is another company that was created that is called this name, Crypto Forensic, led by Paul and I created mine, Traceland. So what do you do in basically crypto forensics on a daily basis? Basically, what do you do? So the forensic analysis consists when we are investigating a crime on tracing often the stolen funds from the, the theft address into a laundering network until certain specific points in which are important for the investigation. So that involves tracing through different addresses, what is called clusters, which are groups of addresses from a one blockchain to another blockchain and so on. Mm, like bridges and whatnot. Bridges, swaps, exchanges. So that begs the question... What are people really doing 
to try and evade you and get away. Because <laughs> you see, like, majority of the hacks now, they're naive and don't do anything sophisticated. They kind of just do it, get caught, and go to prison. Or I imagine, like, the sophisticated people would be using something proxies tour going through mixes and all that stuff so what's the most common things you see and the differentiators between the people that get away and the people that don't get away so regarding privacy and obsec there are many different techniques at many different levels from the router firmware to the vpn or a proxy there are many services providing new privacy on that end in the black market there are a lot of them and also like commercial products so that's from one end there are voip numbers also for registering accounts different techniques and then from the money laundering aspect it is pretty common to see lately what we call LAS, so laundering as a service. Those are people that are basically asking you if you have uh, dirty coins and they send you clean ones <laughs> on the other end, right? Uh, that kind of things are, are pretty common and um, we have to deal with that quite often. Mules also to register accounts and exchanges, also pretty common. What happens with the laundering as a service people? Because if they're getting sent the dirty money, how do they clean it then? <laughs> you know, now they've got the dirty money, so what happens then? Well, that depends on the background of the person providing the service. Often, either it is a big one and they have their own exchange, call it like that, or group of wallets uh, to do that kind of procedures of passing the funds through it and just sending it out in a different blockchain. So they have liquidities on one end and on another end, and they provide it like that. In other instances, they use exchanges and there are a couple of exchanges that are, let's say, the black sheep on the sector, Huawei, for instance, or Lately also, we've seen quite a few transactions happening in other exchanges like Binance, which is one of the largest ones and should be one of those that most careful with this kind of thing happening. So basically depositing one exchange and then sending to the other mixers, that's also possible. There are also quite a few mixers. And by the way, the mixing techniques also to the mix them. And some curious one, I found one that is in fact using humans for mixing the funds. What they do is that they pay you, for instance, for taking the money, passing it through an exchange, registering the account on exchanges, obviously, and just withdraw it from it. So it's actual humans as the mix itself. Yeah, the mixer are humans moving the funds. Right. Interesting. <laughs> Arrives to the fact that there are also mules that are very easy, very cheap. There is a very large market on that aspect. People are modest and pay them $10 or $20 and, and they put you that their KYC on an exchange. Yeah, they wouldn't care. They'd just be like, oh, okay, free money, basically. If they're not really into crypto and thinking about the ramifications and whatnot, or maybe they do know about it. No, that's the point, that those exchanges should have like some kind of policy to prevent that sort of things from happening. Like, you know, there is a grandmother in a lost village that probably does not earn more than $30,000 per year. Suddenly, she registered an account and she's making transactions for more than, than two millions in, in just yeah. a few weeks, right? <laughs> that kind of shit, it should pop up immediately to some exchange that has some kind of responsibility. The teams that are from compliance or security, they, they should. Because the money, the volume is going in and out, so that's what they care about. Maybe they don't want to filter that out. They're just batting an eye the other way just because you can market it as better stats or they get a fee from it. Yeah, absolutely. There is a monetary aspect involved in that. And it is clear that the more they are capable of processing their exchange, the more they are going to earn on fees. And it is sad that it is just about it. And I think that compliance in that end and regulations in that end 
are important and we are still in an early phase, I think, in, in the blockchain sector. And at some point, those regulations should shape the, the sector and make it more secure. I think because it hasn't got super hard regulatory stances, it's easy to just do kind of whatever until that happens. Recently, what do you see as the latest money laundering trends that are happening? Yeah, what I mentioned before, laundering as a service, OTC, there are really people that are basically offering that service and truly stating that they can launder dirty money and send you clean one on the other end. Okay, interesting. They obviously have to do some kind of hack or scam someone, like phishing, drainers. Drainers are interesting. We were talking about this before the podcast, but it's not just provide your private key and then that's how you get drained. It's also from like signing transactions, not signing transactions, but you know, messages, permit, for example, like a Uniswap permit, you know, fake front ends and obfuscated call data or even no call data. It could just be like a function and select and they wouldn't even see what's happening. So that's like a whole industry in itself as well. So the trainers as other frauds are structured as per what I could discover with certain groups of people that provide the malicious code and other people that provide the advertisement or the phishing platform to sell that. And often they don't know each other. They are all anonymous and they operate in that way, paying portion of that. Basically, those who operate the malicious code are going to be in charge of making happen those transactions and send a, a commission or, or take a commission from the one that is making the and controlling the phishing site. And those phishing sites often also utilize services from hackers who can hack an account on a well-known platform like YouTube or Twitter. I don't know, like an account with 1 million followers. That is pretty expensive on the black market and they can just hack it and take control over it, put a link to, you know, a certain phishing site. And this is pretty common on, on the sector. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, obviously when they take the money, you're doing a white hat as a service to, to basically do fund recovery. So how does that process work? It's also a, a niche in itself as well. First of all, you have the investigation, but then also white hacking. How do you really do that? And what's the process behind it? Well, to be completely accurate, recovering the funds that are stolen is not per se a service and it should not be a per se a service, in my opinion. What we provide at Traceloan are investigative services, which in some cases lead to recovering a certain amount of stolen funds. That often requires the participation of law enforcement agencies or third-party services, for instance. And in certain cases, in very specific and exceptional cases, it is possible to make, execute recoveries, or in particular when the private key is obtained from a certain wallet. And that can be done directly using certain, certain libraries and systems that I'm not going to detail. But we could, and me in particular, I could work a lot on that kind of specialized service by basically being faster than a contender during an operation of recovery. But it's very limited. It is only possible under certain circumstances that are very particular. Interesting, yeah. When we think about hackers and them getting away with it or even attempting to get away with it, it always comes back to being anonymous in the internet, which I think is incredibly hard in this day and age. I could be wrong. I'm naive, right? So what are your thoughts on being anonymous? How actually difficult is it to be anonymous? Anonymity takes... A lot of effort and it goes from reviewing every single thing that we have from our computer 
to the outside connection. So from their router firmware to the VPN or proxy to the application that we might be using, the OS that we have installed on a computer, there are so many things to take care of. Like, And it is so easy to make a mistake. You can register on a platform with a certain email or, or phone number. And, you know, we can always get more numbers and more emails, but at some point it is very complicated to completely isolate one thing from the other. And then there are leaks that are spawning every day, like terabytes of data every week on the black market. And many of those data leaks are about platforms that got hacked. And there are all those emails and passwords and phone numbers that allow to connect one account with another account because they're registered with the same one, right? Yeah, you mentioned the black market and browsing there. So when someone does an exploit, for example, they try to sell on the black market. Obviously, it's a massive Web2 black market because that's how they make the money after stealing data. I mean, do web, do web free people even go on the black market and do stuff? There? Maybe they buy something. I assume they would use crypto to buy a bunch of stuff, do whatever, go into red rooms and buy drugs when like the Silk Road was available. But maybe there's alternatives now. But I imagine they do stuff like that, which I feel like wouldn't be easy to do that because it would be on tour or maybe there is a different platform it's all on now. Black markets are, uh, the, the direct markets are in fact in different platforms. Some are on tour, others are on Telegram. Most of them are using Tor or Onions, but not always. Basically, it is possible to buy from a machine gun to drugs to whatever you can imagine, right? So leak data or zero-day exploits, like everything is sold there. Even red, ro- red rooms, well, that's kind of a urban legend, but it's not. Like, <laughs> that kind of things exist. It is quite disturbing, but there, there is people on the darknet that is ready to do anything for money, absolutely anything. Unfortunately, that's reality. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you ever encountered someone like that or doing an investigation and somehow you crack some code and it's like, wow, I, I did not expect this? Well, I found one time somebody who fell into human traffic networks and was probably related to the war in Ukraine. Oh, so quite recently, actually. Yes, it was quite recent. It's categorized as thism. Well, I immediately reported that to the police and they took it. It is quite shocking and disturbing. And it's not easy to do that kind of work, but it's very, very, very important. The amount of cooperation that we find from law enforcement, from services and whatnot is positive. So how did you even discover that they are who they are, or at least the organization? As you say, like black markets can be on Telegram or Tor, but when you trace down the history on chain, it's always there. And how did you come to the conclusion that they were whatever they are? If it's just tracking down transactions, maybe it goes to an exchange and then you ask the exchange for who they are and then it goes from there. But how does that kind of process look like? Well, there are different sizes, let's call it like that. There are fraudsters, criminals that are lone wolves, that they have their own private wallet, and those wallets have their own fingerprint. It also happened that those criminals are in a certain group, or they create certain service, or like a darknet market, or some other kind of platform to provide service or sell their products. And those have also their own technical characteristics, those transactions, the way they are structured in a deposit hot wallet structure manner or not. And ultimately, there are also systems, automated systems that are continuously scanning both the clear net, but also the dark net and collecting data. Like scraping bots. Yeah, absolutely. There are a few companies that are very good at that. For instance, we've been joining efforts with the ATII, which is 
an association that focuses on fighting the human trafficking activities. They are pretty good at that, at collecting data and categorizing it and this kind of things. I imagine when you do this stuff and you, you're basically company, I wonder if they even try and target basically government officials and people like yourself to basically stop this. Is that ever on the back of your mind? If you're tracking down criminals, there's the inherent risk of the criminal coming to get you. <laughs> well, I will say there is always a risk to, to have somebody confronting you when you do this kind of job. So obviously security is a primary aspect to take care of. But, you know, like it happens also to, to law enforcement agents. They also have that risk. And often this sort of investigation, criminal investigation requires at some point to involve, to have law enforcement involved. Let's say it wouldn't be the smartest thing to do to confront those investigators. It can happen, but I would say kind of rare. it would be not the smartest thing to do, in my opinion. I agree. It's just kind of like asking for more trouble. And I think it's an even bigger offense if you go after officials as well, just like the normal civilian. When we talk about mixes like Tornado Cash and Wasabi and whatever whatever else there is, it's funny because it got sanctioned and they got put in prison, the, the Tornado people. But you know, then you see networks that are entirely based on ZK, like ZK VMs. So when we think about this, <laughs> where you can build basically infinite versions of a tornado cache, again, naive, but that's what I'm getting the hint at. What are your thoughts on this? Because then to track down basically hackers and anyone that's doing criminal actions on, let's say, a privacy chain, well, if there's private transactions and private mempools, how can you even follow the transactions? And you can think of this in like Monero as well, like privacy chains. Or, yeah, so... It must get like significantly harder to like a breaking point where you can't actually track them. Regarding the mixing and mixers in particular. So mixers are different types. There are centralized and decentralized mixers. And then there are privacy chains, like you mentioned, Monero between others. There are always people who claim that they can, you know, the mix, the mix, for instance, Monero, which was quite funny. I think was Cypher Trace is a large company that was acquired by, by MasterCard not long ago. And they claimed that they could demix uh, Monero, which was completely a joke. It is impossible. And they collected quite a lot of funds for that work to design that solution, which was, in my opinion, was a failure. Basically, what they did was using the, the addresses, like the addresses that are used for on Monero, they are sometimes used very many times in different places. And that's basically a Cypher Trace solution to demix it. Quotes, quotes, they mix it. There are many techniques that can be applied to mixers of different sorts, either centralized, decentralized, or privacy chains. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but basically there are behavioral analysis, there is time and volume analysis, and there are sometimes mistakes that a user of a certain mixer can make that will compromise or reduce the privacy that they obtain from that certain service. So those are techniques that are known in certain niche and are applicable to investigative to, to the investigation. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder what differentiates a good investigator from an average one and a world-class one? Yeah, so good question. So yeah, I think it's important to be aware that uh, everything that is... So investigators, what an investigator does is uh, make assessments based on evidence or that that's what they should do. And there are many times people who claim to be investigators that are just like making connections between certain things and those connections being like not very not verifiable or in a large proportion being part of a subjective opinion of that investigator. So a good investigator will always have that in mind and, and be completely 
objective and, you know, follow evidence and leads that are verifiable. That's crucial, I would say. We see independent investigators like Zach, Zach XT, um, you know, doing really well. I wonder, he must like obviously have his own tools and not using something like the public tools like Tenderly or Falcon to do investigations. Well, it might be, but I imagine they would have custom tools, right? Quite recently, it's pretty interesting that these people were at like a nightclub and, you know, you can buy like the bottle girls and they bring out these like signs of the words you put on or whatever text you want and they're just taunting this investigator oh yeah i saw that that was funny yeah right uh yeah so I, first of all so what Zach is using is uh qlue from uh, blockchain Engines group if i'm not wrong that's the tool he's using as far as i remember so it is a forensic tool yeah from a company it's a private forensic tool for investigators yeah it's something that Normally he's paid. And I saw that video. That was so funny. He said that, there were, that those were some phishing scammers that were making a party and they put his name on the screen. That was quite funny. That was quite funny, yeah. They did it like twice. This is interesting because I had once a conversation with somebody from a security company, Zoko, it's called, and he was telling me like, you know, Frosters, they are just normal people and they are just doing like a normal job, right? It is just that the work, that the job is a little bit special <laughs> and that can take them to, pre- to prison. But they are just normal people and they do parties and they have fun and whatever and whatnot, right? So yeah, that, there is that human aspect also to, to, to that sort of people. Obviously, less, they do not have the same ethical values, I would say, that others, but uh, yeah. Yeah, just look at SPF, just some fucking geek that did the wrong thing and used millions of dollars that were not meant to be used. And now he's just got convicted for like 110 years. The funds are still moving though. This is a while ago. I remember seeing this, but it's when like the whole kind of thing blew up and FTX crashed and people were moving money from the company, like a bunch of wallets. And it was like, wait, what's happening? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I was having some talk with people from FTX at the time and they were pretty shocked and very sad. And well, they were not absolutely at all happy about what happened and what Sam did. That took place. There was a hot wallet and I'm not sure if there was some kind of order from a court about those funds, but I remember that they started to move <laughs> from yeah, FTX just, hot wallet. What's happening? <laughs> yeah. Somebody was saying like, it's a hacker. And I remember that we were making jokes in private with a photo of some with a mustache and saying, like, hey, we found a hacker, right? <laughs> we don't know who he is. but uh... Shadowy coder moving all the money. Oh no. Do you have access to the private key? <laughs> Oh no. Yep. <laughs> oh man. I think the fraud is pretty interesting. I think you see the Lazarus one, like the North Korea connections. Those ones are pretty interesting because they don't care about their identity at all. I mean, they're just kind of safe. Like anyone in Russia or North Korea is just safe by default. And then you have like the teenagers, like the index finance guy and the EULA, EULA hacker. You know, just teenagers making bad decisions. They just don't do any planning on how they're even going to get it out. It's just kind of testing and then executing and it was funny because the index finance guy was just kind of taunting them the entire time but then he lost it all but he was quite young though so i think he got kind of like kind of away with it i don't think he got put in prison but there are all sorts of uh, profiles that commit crime from the from a kid that is barely uh, 16 years old or 18 years old or whatever and to uh, state-sponsored professional teams of hackers north korea is pretty well known for that probably russia is going to is probably already considering that, if not uh, doing it already, as soon as they get isolated from a geopolitical uh, point of view, uh, sometimes they have to use that sort of techniques to finance certain programs that are 
not well seen let's say like that right? i mean pretty efficient though if you're like you know the ronin bridge i think that was like 600 mil or something on it was like the biggest hack i think that was like the Axie infinity ronin bridge it's always the bridges that are just like multi millions of dollars it's just ridiculous and i think it's because they're all unique and there's no standard of bridges so they're like an obvious target for failure when there's no standard it's just i mean yeah bridges are are, are dangerous <laughs> like it is obviously you know a weak point i would say on the ecosystem they are obviously targeted by by people who know how to execute that kind of of hack right but then you know a lot of people are building a live basically exploit detection like in the mempool trying to find it with like basically ml but you know with suave which is like flashbots this new kind of mempool thing and even like the normal private mempool if they were just smart enough to go through there and just mask their ip and region and then just go through like monero or something they're kind of home free until they you know go through some kind of laundering service yeah, you mentioned Flashbot, and I just want to to say that I'm extremely fan of what they do, and I, I use it quite often, in particular for the recovery part. Oh yeah, so. but I I really love their 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 job, the, what they are doing, and absolutely. Yeah, it'd be way awesome. harder without them, you know, on Ethereum. <laughs> you just <laughs> go front ran, bro, and it's GG. <laughs> yeah, like bribing the miners. That that's brilliant. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, they bribe the miners so that transactions are positioned in a different uh, place on the on the block, right? Yeah, yeah. They provide a certain script for miners, and they get uh, an extra payment to uh, allow certain transactions to be on top. Which is surprising that a, a lot of hackers don't do private transactions, which just goes to show the how naive they are of the overall ecosystem. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Another thing, like this, is pretty popular and I'm, I'm sure that uh, or you recognize when there is somebody with a absolutely likely fake picture saying hello and that's all somebody you never talk with before right oh yeah yeah all the time yeah yeah so that kind of people i'm sure that anybody listening to this that has a telegram account have seen that already for as long as they joined the, the blockchain sector for a few months and in fact those people are from two places mainly one is Nigeria, and the other, it depends a little bit, but it's some Asiatic country, often China, Cambodia, or Thailand. What I've seen is that the Nigerian people, well, they go into those coffee, internet coffee uh, shops, and they just, you know, do that all day long, I presume, just contacting people, grabbing, they grab the user Telegram handlers from groups that are public. That's the way they, they grab those usernames and then they just spam them using an account with a fake name and photo. And the Asiatic ones, in fact, and this is something that I learned also via ATII, is that in fact, it is the Anti-Human Trafficking Association, is that many of those are in fact victims of human traffic. So the scammers are victims also. And they often groom, groom, groom them, they take them or they convince them to join a certain job offer and that is not, that doesn't exist. And they pick them up in China and then they move them to Cambodia or to Thailand or other countries on that area and force them to work and force them to, to make certain things, including scamming, right? Not only that, but in South America, there are, there are quite a few of those too. And many of those people saying hello are in fact... Also, victims. It's just the scammers get get scammed, but completely like way worse. 
you know, it was interesting because I, I remember meeting some uh, Mongolians actually, and they were telling me about Mongolia and the homeless kind of situation there, uh, especially I think at nighttime, not even if you, you don't have to be homeless, but at nighttime in Mongolia, you just kind of get snatched up and then, you know, you're kind of banished, you know, it's a uh, human trafficking, I assume happening there, probably Chinese come or they just get shipped off somewhere. It's interesting, this whole underworld game, incredibly scary and bad, but you've got to be aware of it, you know? Yeah, of course. It's, it is the same that uh, happens to other victims uh, of financial frauds. If it is too good to be true, it is probably not true. <laughs> it is probably, probably yeah. fraud. And many of those people that get into those networks are often trying to get a job, very well-paid job in a different country, while they have no education or no specific advantage for engaging them, right? So they see that as an excellent opportunity and they go for it. Then they have their passports taken out and obliged to pay for a certain debt they are allegedly have right oh yeah yeah you just go to the country your path was taken away and now you're just stuck it's gg basically yeah that's basically in general terms how, how they operate you know i wonder from your entire experience of you know seven years of doing this what are like the most crazy and interesting experiences you've had because you know it's a pretty long career you know? at least my standard the most crazy thing that happened most of the work i do is confidential i cannot talk about it but sometimes there are some articles that are published and because the, the victim agrees to reveal part of the investigation. And one of them, I'm really proud of that investigation. It was about an exchange in Venezuela. And the owners of the exchange were accused by the government of executing that hack. I was leading that investigation and I don't think that I could re recover the money. Or, But anyways, what I could find is that the perpetrator was... Russian and he swapped the funds for rubble. We provide that information to the Venezuelan government and I was in talks with the prosecutor there and explained them like, you know, the likelihood for those guys in Venezuela who own the exchange to perpetrate the hack and then exchange the money, the funds for fiat in rubble is so, so low that I can, with almost absolute certitude, uh, tell you that those are not the scammers, that they did not perpetrate that, that fraud. That is something else and it's somebody that is Russian because they received the funds in, in rubble, in fiat, right? So, and they got liberated, in fact. And I can tell you that prison in Venezuela is not a joke. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's crazy. I look at convicted. You basically saved their lives. They must have gave you like a massive hug. <laughs> they were really happy, yes. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you find your strengths in an investigation? I assume every single kind of niche what differentiates people is the way they do things and the way they think so how did you find your strengths and uh, capitalize on that so it takes a lot of effort blockchain forensics in fact is not a science and there are a few lawsuits recently ones about chainalysis and their product reactor and chainalysis is the market leader at the current moment on the blockchain forensics niche right basically what was said is that their methodology to provide forensics or was based on heuristics that are not science. And I agree with that in the sense that blockchain forensics is not a science, it's more like an art. An artist is going to make some drawings on the, on a, on the wall and the person looking at that maybe has no, no idea about art and is going to say, this is just for nonsense. Somebody who knows a little bit about art is going to tell you, no, like this is a piece of art because this means that and that means, means the other thing. And that's the difference between somebody 
who has been working doing blockchain forensics for years and somebody who has not, right? Yeah, of course. I think it mostly comes down to experience and you build some kind of intuition for it. I mean, for me, when I was getting into crypto analysis of trying to find exploits and generating them, you would build heuristics and... I mean, then I built a tool. So I imagine you would build tools as well to automate your process to some degree. So it's kind of hybrid. I imagine AI would help as well build this kind of intuition of connecting pieces and kind of discovering things. Because you have the whole blockchain there as data. And if you know what it looks. You are completely right on that one. There is a lot of to explore there because there is actually no large analysis company that is using artificial intelligence combined to blockchain forensics. And there is a lot to do in that area. I personally have a few ideas on that and a few projects, but I don't want to tell right here. <laughs> I'm an IT engineer, so I build tools and I have built tools for different aspects on data analysis and tracing analysis. So going through all these experiences, have you ever came across some close calls at all where you were in danger or someone else was in danger as you were doing it? Well, there have been a few times in which it was a little bit critical in particular. I'm not going to give too many details, but you can imagine that victims sometimes when they know who their perpetrator is, I mean, not all of them, but in certain cases, uh, people want really to act physically against the perpetrator. And you can imagine that there were not a lot, but a few isolated episodes in that sense that required to have uh, law enforcement involved. Yeah, that's also something that can happen. Yeah. Mm, interesting. And when you're hiring for Tracelon, what do you really look for in new hires or investigators? Because I don't think, well, then again, I'm naive again, but how do you even prove to them or to yourself that they're an investigator and if they're doing competent? stuff as well like you are then how do you really prove that well uh, retaining somebody for that kind of role requires a background check and one of the things that are very important is to have some sort of clearance for instance people who have been working already for governmental agencies intelligence agencies that's, that's pretty important so that's about it so like zach had any experience beforehand i mean what would you say to people that want to get into it though because i think it would be kind of difficult to get into it well i will say first of all you have to be very interested on privacy on opsec how that works and you have to be very passionate about this it is not impossible to enter the sector it takes some time yeah i don't think there's a clear path for any resources to really get to that level i think there's some pretty basic resources or like certificates and whatnot but it's such a niche though and it's not like you can go practice on some random data but you see the gotcha is that in fact this kind of job is a combination of many different aspects for instance legal aspects so a legal expert could also redirect their career into blockchain investigations, law enforcement could do it also, and IT engineer also could do it. So there are different combinations of knowledge that are very distant one from the other that are required. And it's very hard to find somebody who has all the three at the same time. It's like multidisciplinary. Yes. Criminologies in, in that sense. Multidisciplinary also. <laughs> How did you even get into it, actually? <laughs> How did you like transition, though, from security auditing, right? But an investigation is not really like that, though. It's, I think, very different from just auditing. Yes, it is. In fact, how I came up to this is because many years ago, I found a guy who was an expert on finance, an Italian person at a coffee. And we started to talk and we see each other one, one week or another and... At some point, he told me like, hey, you know what Bitcoin is? And that was my first Bitcoin that I bought. And it was like anti-Gox crash. It was around that time. I was 
completely naive. I didn't know what was that, that, that. And I just bought it and sold it and make a few bucks. And I was super happy about it. Then I started to see, uh, to get interested on the, on the sector. And I just started to focus on it like full time. It was that combination of making research about blockchain technology. And at the same time, having that security background plus this IT engineering studies. So at some point, it just made sense to transition into that because most of the things that were, I was doing on, on the blockchain was checking out if it's not a scam. Right? <laughs> yeah, seeing if it's not a rug pull or anything, which are like, there's so many of them now. And I think it's only going to get worse in like bull markets. I mean, do you go after these people as well, rug pullers? Or? Yeah, it happened. I mean, rug pulls are very common. And during those bull markets, it creates a lot of FOMO. And FOMO is, in fact, one of the weak points that investors have because the scammers, what they do, one of the techniques they use is time pressure and giving offers that are look absolutely wonderful. So when an investor has FOMO, fear of missing out, and at the same time, the scammer is using time pressure techniques, has unfortunately the effect of causing a lot of damage to a lot of people so i mean it's an entire market as well in mev lp sniping it's basically these bots versus the scammers and it's a known fact that these people like 90 percent of them are all scams or rug pulls it's basically a game of who can steal each other's money the most (laughs) so it's like this whole little market you know where they like make custom contracts where it like limits the amount of transactions that an address can do or within a certain block. It's a, a whole game, bro. It's very lucrative if you can pull it off for the MEV people and I guess even the, the rug pulls as well because there's just so many bots trying to get in. And if they, you know, just do some private transaction of a rug when everybody's invested, it's, I mean, GG, you know. Rug pulls are different uh, MEVs in the sense that, uh, yeah, like for instance, trying to find some weak point in between two different pools and they just make operations very rapidly to empty one of the pools, which is obviously uh, malicious. It's not intended to be used in that way. And rug pulls are, so that's kind of a technical attack. And rug pulls, at, at least in the, in the way I, I understand them, are executed by the owners of the project that is collecting funds. And they do a fundraising and then they just extract the tokens or the value because there are many different techniques to do that. They can not lock the tokens and just dump them into the into a, a decentralized pool and just grab all the ether and run away with it and the token suddenly has zero value. That's one way. A different way is to oversell too many tokens for what is going to be the liquidity in a certain pool, which leads to anybody just making a rock pool just to have one person of the tokens or the total liquidity, the total cap of the coin and just sell it and there is a rook pool, right? So there are different manners, right, to do that. And especially since it's so unregulated, nobody really goes after them as well. The law is not really set in stone. It's all up in the air in like a gray zone, really. There's not a lot of eyes on it either, at least now. There's only eyes on the big hacks. Well, I wouldn't say that. Like You may have heard of people who made this kind of fraud and they got away. But they got away now, and maybe they got away for one year or two years. But justice is slow, but relentless. And when they finally get to that case, they execute the sentences. And I would say, like, in particular, large operations like a, a rook pool in which they have to register in many different platforms, retain people, make payments. At some point, there is a mistake. It is so easy to make a mistake, you know. It is not like a defi hack. I would say there are also risks. 
quite a few, but less than those that who have to operate a real or a fictive company to collect investors' money. Yeah, that's the thing. It's on the blockchain forever. It's not like you do it and there's no trace and you can eventually you'll get traced back to you. So if you fuck up at least once and that's all it takes. <laughs> it's all it takes and it can be just a very dumb detail somewhere. <laughs> oh yeah. It is like that. Well, I really hope Tracelon gets some more traction and uh, it becomes one of the best in the space. It was a pleasure having you on and I think this was very insightful for me and I imagine for everyone else listening because it's not something you would come across on a daily. It's a pretty niche and the closest thing to public presence is like Zach XBT really. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on and I appreciate your time. Thank you, Gatine. It was a pleasure.